Welcome back to Institutionalized, a podcast about American institutions and why they've gone crazy. I'm Charles Fain Lehman of Feldman Manhattan Institute and contributing editor of City Journal. Hi, I'm Aaron Sabarium, a reporter at the Washington Free Beacon. And Aaron, how are you doing today? I'm all right. As we record this, my girlfriend is feeling a little under the weather. I don't think it's anything serious, but she's just getting some tests run to make sure. In in any case, some stomach, you know, abdominal pain. You're receiving up to the minute updates. I'm um, yeah. So if, I, if I'm a little distracted over the course of this episode, because I'm just making sure that my that I answer any calls for my girlfriend. She's a seat. Hopefully. Yeah, I'm sure Hopefully she is. But I'm I'm a high strung I'm I'm you know I'm a high strung Jewish guy. So you know, <laughs> I'm in the ER. It's like she, I mean she's fine, but like ER shit. Like you know I. I so my 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 cortisol levels are high. Yeah, are you testing your blood level. I I, I don't know. I just, just I've heard. I've also heard that Jews genetically have higher cortisol levels. Oh, okay. That um, apparently, that. that's a part of the source of their. I'm explaining a lot. Yeah, it does. I mean, yeah. We'll see if we'll see if I need to go up and uh, head to her. Go up and visit her at the hospital. Hopefully not. So speaking speaking of visitation rights. Yeah, yeah. I mean, very topical. I mean, yeah, yeah. Imagine, imagine not being able to visit your loved one in the hospital. Right. Well, so, so we should we should use that as a as a convenient segue into our, our topic this week, which we're talking about same sex marriage in particular, the history and emergence of same sex marriage, and the political realities around it. Just to give a little background, as most of our listeners, I don't know, we have young listeners, like half of them were in elementary school when all this happened. I'm sure same sex marriage became the law of the land, depending on your definition, 2015, 2012. 2015, through the Supreme Court's ruling of Rooker v. Hodges, that really represented a dramatic sea change over a 20-year period. In 1996, Gallup reports roughly three in four Americans opposed same-sex marriage. Today, roughly three in four Americans support same-sex marriage. And that sea change was both sort of a, an organic cultural shift, but it also represented a political and legal campaign the contours of which touch on a lot of our common themes. And our guest has written a great deal about, has, has written a whole book about the, the, the process by which same-sex marriage went from being sort of a, an abstract idea, something that people didn't really contemplate, to a concrete legal reality. Before we introduce our guest, Aaron, I guess I'm interested in your thoughts on, on today's topic. Yeah, so there's a lot here. I'll, I'll just offer one comment that I hope can maybe frame a bit of the discussion. Throughout kind of modern American post-Civil Rights Act history, a lot of minorities have secured various rights and recognition as a protected class by effectively analogizing themselves to African Americans. The, the template established by the Black Civil Rights Movement has been used, I think, as a kind of rhetorical and conceptual model for a lot of other groups. And to my mind, Part of what makes the gay marriage fight interesting is that it I mean, you 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 did hear certain analogies between now you do between gays and and between sexual orientation and race. It does happen. But to me, the 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 overriding analogy and the thing that was really effective was effectively gay rights activists said, see, you know, we're just like you. We're just like you know, bourgeois, straight people, and we want to become even more like them, and we will if you just let us get married. And in certain ways, I think that 
constitutes a kind of a departure from the the model of minority rights recognition that held and recurred for the previous 50 years. So I'm interested in the extent to which the gay rights movement did or did not kind of adopt the the familiar tactics of other civil rights movements throughout American history and, and what lessons that might have going forward. Yeah, I mean, you know, for, for me, I'm, I'm interested in, in sort of the adjacent topic. I mean, look, I would go as far as to say that same-sex marriage is the most impactful social change, at least since the end of Jim Crow, um, in terms of sort of the scale, not not necessarily in terms of its effect, but in the scale of social transformation that was required. And, you know, what's what's interesting to me is that I think SSM is, essentially is sort of no longer part of the discourse, right? Donald Trump, 2016, sort of goes, yeah, that's been decided. We're moving on from that. And I think it's sort of the consensus. And it is... It is so, you know, in, in, in a sense, it's sui generis. There, there's almost nothing that looks like that rapid inversion in public opinion, except maybe marijuana legalization. In another sense, you know, as, as you alluded to and our guest alludes to, that change is a product of a conscious, I wouldn't, only sometimes deliberate, sometimes, and we'll talk about this in a minute, sometimes sort of a haphazard campaign. And so I'm very interested to what extent is that is, is it actually sui generis? To what extent is it actually just sort of a thing that happened versus to what extent is can we learn more about the political process by studying it? So a great guy talking about all of this with is our guest. Sasha Eisenberg is a journalist and the author of three books, most recently The Engagement, America's Quarter Century Struggle Over Same-Sex Marriage. He's the Washington correspondent for Monocle. He's also written for New York Magazine, New York Times Magazine, and George, where he served as a contributing editor. He, teaches, he also teaches in the political science department at UCLA. Sasha, thank you so much for joining us. Really glad to be here with you guys. So, so I want to I want to start with sort of open with a provocative question, and I think you know one of the one of the key themes at play in the same sex marriage fight is is basically democratic legitimacy. Like the the, the argument that Andrew Scalia makes in his Obergefell dissent is basically. Nine, nine, nine judges have circumvented the democratic process that was playing out across the country. To what extent do you think that's a fair analysis? It does seem like a lot of how same-sex marriage happened was through legal procedure rather than through democratic procedures. To what extent do you think it's accurate? To what extent do you think that's inaccurate? Absolutely. And so, you know, this was happening in, in states before it was happening in the federal courts. And so the the first several states that that legalized recognition of same-sex couples did so at the initiative of of courts that were interpreting state constitutions not the US constitution the way that the the US Supreme Court did in 2015 and in many cases there was a political backlash to that the you know the story sort of starts in Hawaii where the Hawaii Supreme Court sort of out of nowhere from a from a jurisprudence perspective rules in 1993 that the fundamental right to marriage can apply to same-sex couples and it goes back to trial, the the plaintiffs, the, the three gay couples who sued win at trial, but the legislature's already sort of wrested back control of this issue. And they do what ultimately three dozen states end up doing, which is write prohibitions on same-sex marriage, sometimes through as basic as, as a statutory sentence that says marriage in the state can apply only to, to the union of one man and one woman, and sometimes with, with far more broke sort of defensive language and in, in many of those states, constitutional amendments. And so we see that sequence of court victories that lead to a political backlash that makes 
you know, basically takes the issue off the table for for both uh, the the legal and political spheres to to deal with. Obviously, given the impracticality of constitutional amendments in in you know the the country now, especially on substantive topics, there was an effort to do this. Obviously, in two thousand three and four, really to write a federal marriage amendment, it was sort of successful to the extent that it got a majority in the Senate. It just didn't get a, a supermajority. It passed the House. It's gotten farther than most other non-procedural constitutional amendments have in, in you know, a century. And but obviously once it got to the US Supreme Court, there was, you know, there was a finality to that in in terms of of the question of of democratic legitimacy it wasn't going to go back to the people in any form ever again. So th- this has been a constant push pull and you know increasingly what you see you see a shift in rhetoric I think that sort of tracks how public opinion moves on the underlying question of basically do you accept you know gays and lesbians in society and as anti-gay marriage opponents realize that anti-gay attitudes are weakening increasingly they go to the kind of procedural systemic argument, which is, you know, this shouldn't be an issue for the courts. So a, a lot of the rhetoric and in liberal states like Vermont against a Supreme Court ruling and stuff like take back Vermont, not it's not about gays or lesbians or about marriage, but it's about this just something that, that the people should be able to vote on. Yeah, so I want to I, I want to back up a little bit because I think Honestly, a lot of our listeners are probably in my in my position. You know, I I was born in 1994, which is four years after Beverly Lewin. Aaron was born in 96, which means he was born the year Domo was passed. And like this whole fight happened more or less as you know, I didn't know what the heck was going on in 2004. I had no idea about the National Marriage of Everett because I was 10. But so you know, I think a lot of our listeners are in that camp. So I I, I guess I want to ask you to talk more specifically about what the world was like in the 1990s and how people thought about same-sex marriage, the extent to which this was, I mean, almost unthinkable in certain regards. You know, it's like like innovated is, is one way to put it. Yeah, so this, the story starts in 1990 in Hawaii. And at that point, gay marriage is not in any recognizable way a political issue or a legal objective anywhere on earth. There, you know, there's one country on earth at that point that recognizes same-sex families. Denmark, a year earlier, had had come up with something that basically we now would call civil unions, but very pointedly did not use the word marriage and also did not include adoption rights. So it, it's quite distinct from, from marriage. But in the United States, there wasn't a, you know, a gay rights organization that had endorsed marriage as a policy objective. There was barely a politician in the country who'd ever been asked his or her opinion on same-sex marriage. And you had an increasingly organized sort of religious conservative movement, primarily evangelical, but also fundamentalist, Protestant, Catholic, others who were were increasingly organized around fighting the expansion of gay rights. But they were not trying to stop gays and lesbians from marrying because there was not any... uh, uh, indication that that was something that they were, were were trying to do. And so when this process starts in Hawaii, you know, and, and I go into some detail about the sort of, you know, very peculiar idiosyncratic sequence of events that takes place there, but it's, it's initiated by a local activist who basically is trying to put on a PR stunt and ends up leading to a lawsuit against the state. 
but there's no legal strategy that is behind this. And and when I started my research on this over a decade ago now, I'm a little older than you guys are. I was born in 1980. So the the origins of this were, you know, I'm when I was in my 20s, this had already sort of emerged as the defining kind of culture war issue of of of, of that period of my life. And I didn't know what the origins of it were. And that's part of what animated me to, to take this on. And I assumed, you know, both of you, I think, have now mentioned in some form or other the civil rights movement and the end of Jim Crow is as as an analogy. And it's sort of impossible to write about this stuff without thinking in some form or another about about the comparison. And I always assumed that I would find and I, you know, starting when I was a teenager, I sort of devoured histories of, of the civil rights movement. And I I kept on assuming that there would be an origin story to this marriage campaign that looked a lot like the effort to bring down Brown through Brown v. Board mm-hmm. to bring down to desegregate schools, for example, where 40 years earlier, basically the NAACP is founded to create a a, a political and legal structure. Howard University founds a law school basically to produce black lawyers who can file anti-discrimination cases. There's a incredibly deliberate incremental plan to build up precedents that can eventually get to the goal of of desegregating public neighborhood high schools right and 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 they go after professional graduate schools first and then they go after undergraduate and it's it is a 30 40 year plan that ends up you know having its its intended result in 1954 and i always assumed that i would find some you know the, the beginning of my story would be a bunch of people sat down and developed a strategy and then, you know, not, maybe not everything went to plan, but that, that this was the goal. And it's like, no, we as a country stumbled into this from it being unimaginable, as you guys said, to, you know, on the desk of the president of the United States in the form of DOMA in, in 1996. And that period, it's one thing to talk about this sort of 25 years from this to the Supreme Court, but the period of this being something we don't talk about as a country in any way, anywhere, activists, lawyers, politicians, to a you know a major policy question that Congress and the president are, are wrestling with is is there there probably are analogies today, but most of them tend to be things that sort of burn quickly and, and fade away because they're not actually real issues and and real de- they they don't actually reflect real divides in in society once they come forward. Right. I mean, one thing I just want to underscore too, because Charles mentioned our our audience probably skews younger. It probably also skews, I would say, more centrist to center right. And we do have, a, am sure, a few serious Christian conservative listeners who don't like same-sex marriage. To just frame this a bit more for the audience, I mean, the debate then and even after same-sex marriage became an issue, it wasn't like the polls of the debate were, do we call it marriage or just civil unions, right? The debate was, I mean, the, the the kind of organized Christian right, would you say it's fair to say that they opposed the extension of a lot of other pretty more basic civil rights to gay people? It wasn't like it was just, oh, do we give do we give do we give them rights and call it X or do we call it Y? It was do we give them rights, period. Absolutely. And so, yeah, I think that this, the, 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 you know, one way to think of it is, you know, so the, the, the real shorthand of. Uh, these two movements emerge by accident in parallel, right? You know, both the gay rights movement and and sort of modern social conservative, especially evangelical driven social conservative, mm-hmm. emerge in the in the nineteen seventies 
reaction to totally different stimuli and catalysts, but they happen to march and sort of emerge and professionalize almost in perfect parallel, right? And so they the it's in the mid to late 70s when the first sort of political advances of the gay rights movement are taking place. They're getting, you know, municipalities and what you would guess are the most the most liberal places in the country, big coastal cities and college towns to write and start writing sexual orientation into their non-discrimination equal protection ordinances. Then in 1983, West Hollywood, California, you know, becomes the first municipality to offer domestic partnership recognition. You start to get a spate of this, mostly for government employees or, or sort of voluntary registries. AIDS ends up being a sort of huge, you know, to say the least, distraction for the gay rights movement. And so a lot of the kind of incremental process, progress towards recognition is, is put aside in the, in the 80s to get funding and, and, and basic recognition. But what their opponents are doing during this time is basically trying to block any political or legal progress that acknowledges homosexuality, right? And so, you know, we're talking the, the fights in 1990 when when this begins is, is should the government basically be, you know, there's still opposition recognition of, of HIV AIDS to the extent that it's affecting one community in particular. There's a fight over whether federal statistics should include for hate crimes should include crimes against gays and lesbians the way they do against racial, ethnic, religious minorities. We're talking about pretty foundational, pretty foundational stuff. And so when when this emerges in the 90s as an issue, as an issue, it's a real two sided question. It should should marriage laws be changed to allow opposite same sex as well as opposite sex couples to marry on equal terms. It's really in the 2000s, between 2000 and 2010, that this becomes a three sided issue, as you mentioned, Aaron, where after the initial sort of progress and foothold that this gets, the safe position for sort of not just politically moderate, but any sort of ambitious national Democrat who does not want to latch onto the, can't really afford to latch onto either of these two positions, right? It's it's untenable to be a Democrat by 2000 who's actively opposed to recognizing gay and lesbian families, just given the nature of the Democratic coalition. On the other hand, polling shows that that's a minority opinion nationally. And so over the course of a decade, John Kerry, Hillary Clinton, Joe Biden, Barack Obama, all of them end up in the same place, which is staking out this third side that becomes possible once Vermont creates civil unions, which are marriage and everything but the name. And they that becomes the sort of dominant plurality position by the end of 2010 among the American people. About 40% basically say we support recognizing same-sex couples, but we don't want to call it marriage. And it's re only reluctantly that that you know, Republican, conservative Republicans even take that position. And in, in 2012, John Huntsman, no social conservative, is running for president, supporting civil unions, and he is the, it is seen as an outlier position even then. So yeah, this is very much a, a binary, like to what extent should the government even recognize sexual minorities in, in any form under the law? So I want to, and I think I think we want to go in a slightly different direction in a minute. But I want to I want to sort of stick on this theme of the contingency and and sort of play devil's advocate a little bit. So you know, here's 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 a relatively straightforward argument, which is that fundamentally, same sex marriage is possible because Anthony Kennedy decided it should be, and he decided that in the '90s. And my argument is like there is a substantive due process right to marriage, and there has been since Loving. 
And then Romer, sorry, for, parenthetically for our listeners, Loving v. Virginia is the one that legalizes, that, that says you can't ban interracial marriage, finds a substantive, there's like a, a right inherent in the 14th Amendment to getting married. And then Romer v. Evans, which says it fails the, the rational basis test to the way in which Colorado discriminates against, sorry, the state of Colorado prohibits non-discrimination on, on the basis of sexual orientation, the court strikes down and says, well, there's no rational basis for this. But like, they're kind of jumping up and down and saying, if you come and ask us if gay people are a suspect class, we will say yes, or at least Anthony Kennedy is saying that. So, you know, one argument is everyone sort of stumbled into this. But another argument is, when you put those two things together, uh, Kennedy was kind of waiting for somebody to ask his opinion. What do you make of that? I mean... Kennedy seemed to to generally want to avoid the suspect class designation and come up with any other way to strike down anti-gay discrimination. But I think it's pretty clear from from Romer in 96, Lawrence v. Texas, which strikes down state sodomy bans, and then Windsor in 2012, which 2013, pardon me, which strikes down the Defense and Marriage Act on a very similar sort of approach as as the Romer argument, which is Congress did this out of a you know bare desire to harm, I think is the language, a minority to single them out. So it's pretty clear that Kennedy was 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 the target audience here for for all of this litigation. And and, and at some point, you know, in the internal deliberations of the gay rights litigators, I think I show this from fairly early on. Every calculation is based on you know what can get us that that fifth vote. They are, though, cognizant. I, they are. This is where I guess it was Aaron who, who talked about the 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 analogy to to the civil rights movement. They are sort of acutely aware of the the what made Loving an easy decision for that court in 1967, which was that many states had gotten to recognize interracial marriages on their own, and that they would not be imposing this on a majority of the country then. And some states got there through court processes, like California, where I live, some states through through legislation. But it, but the, the, the thinking by the late, two, by 2008, 9, 10, when, when gay rights litigators are sort of putting together a strategy to get to the Supreme Court, is thinking about, they operate under the assumption that the court will not do this if it looks like they are imposing something that is fundamentally unpopular on a majority of the country. So that that they're sort of a couple that that precipitates a you know there are few conditions that then they think are necessary to bring such a case. One is we need to make sure that that this is popular. There becomes this effort starting in 2013 to try to move public opinion in states where this is not a live issue. So New York has already legalized same-sex marriage. Mississippi's never going to legalize same-sex marriage through its legislature courts. But there's a sense they're basically under operating under the idea that like Anthony Kennedy reads the newspaper and he's going to see a Gallup poll number and it's either going to say that 52% of Americans support same-sex marriage or 47% of Americans support same-sex marriage. And that's going to weigh on him in terms of whether he thinks that this is a kind of safe thing to do. And then the other thing is, to show enough states have gotten here through their own processes, whether those are through the courts, through the political process, which in some states was legislatively signed by the governor, and in some states through through ballot measures. And they they set up a, a they basically take the math of loving and say, until we are at a place where enough states have gotten to marriage or some equivalent thing like civil unions, we don't feel comfortable taking a case because. We think that that is going to be a source of, of 
you know, they, they, they were asking the court basically to do what it did in Loving, which is to take this patchwork and and iron it out and sort of put the outliers in place with with what the rest of the country is doing, as opposed to the inverse, where we are taking an outlier position that a few states have embraced and imposing it on the majority. And so that I think a lot of why didn't anybody, even if they thought after, you know, Scalia writes in 2003 in his dissent in 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 the sodomy case in, in Lawrence v. Texas, he says the next are going to come and ask for marriage. I mean, it. he, he was incredibly prescient about this at a number That's of times. Right. And so then the question would be, why didn't gay rights litigators the next term, you know, cook up a, a marriage challenge? And it's because they thought that even if they thought that the the that they had the constitutional reasoning to win over five votes, they they thought that that the court would be sensitive enough to the sort of political realities in the states whose laws they would be changing. So, so the story you just told sounds very similar to a story that people like Andrew Sullivan tell, where they say the gay rights movement was largely about persuasion. Yes, there was this legal warfare, but ultimately they wanted to persuade, heart, change hearts and minds, get the country more or less on board with the cultural change before it was ratified by the courts. And, and, Folks like Sullivan will hold this up as a kind of, I you know the 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 highest realization of American ideals of persuasion and civil discourse. You, however, have I think very incisively argued that there's another side to the persuasion campaign, which is not just the carrot but also the stick. And you wrote this interesting New York Times op-ed a, a year or two ago where you said, "Cancel culture works. We wouldn't have marriage equality without it." And basically argue that the roots of what we now call cancel culture traces back to the gay, gay rights movement and how, in particular, it organized these coordinated boycotts against people who were funding anti-same-sex marriage legislation. So could you talk a little bit about that and how central you think the role of kind of social and economic coercion was to the gay marriage fight? Yeah. So, you know, I think this this part of the movement sort of starts after 2008 when California passes Proposition 8. At, to that point, 30 something states had had banned same sex marriage proactively in their state constitutions. In nearly every one of these, it that was the expected result. Polling made clear it was, you know, same sex marriage was unpopular in a given state. There was and there was a, a resource mismatch almost everywhere in almost every one of these states. Until 2008, the opponents of same-sex marriage had a major financial advantage over supporters of same-sex marriage. And part of the shock of Prop 8, you know, one thing was that liberal California on the same day that they elected Barack Obama by 25 points or something passed a ban on same-sex marriage, which was some cognitive dissonance for, for, for people on the left. But there was also for, for folks who were sort of more plugged into the campaign mechanics side of this, this real shock because... The anti-Prop 8 side, the pro-gay marriage side, raised $46 million, $5 million more than their opponents. They had every structural advantage. The whole political leadership of the state supported this or supported their position, opposed Prop 8. And afterwards, there was a real reckoning with how they were running their campaigns. And one of the things that grew out of this was a sort of systematic effort to, in some quarters, to shame opponents of same-sex marriage. And California ends up being this, I think, you know, pretty good proving ground for this as a tactic because even though the state has just voted by about 4% per, 
percentage points to ban same-sex marriage it's constitutional it's still an overwhelmingly pro-gay state they're you know public opinion is 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 pretty liberal on on issues of sexual orientation and so you know the first thing that happens is some coder and like let's just know this is late 2008 early 2000 late 2008 like this is the heights of 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 clever uses of the internet at this time takes the whole public disclosure records for the California authorities of everybody who's given a, a recorded dollar to to pro prop a campaigns and overlays it with a Google map and now and it now you could see if your neighbors gave money to this campaign and that sort of takes off whatever viral meant in, in 2008 that becomes a big deal with activists and it leads to a bunch of sort of one-off protests against you know small businesses. And then there's this, you know, that sort of informs a more systemic effort that a, an activist named Fred Carter launches, particularly aimed at Mormon. There'd been a lot of Mormon money. Orders had sort of come down from the church for, for folks to tithe and volunteer for the Prop 8 campaign. And he successfully launches boycotts of a few Mormon-owned businesses that are sort of consumer-facing outside of, of Utah. He goes after this thing called Bolt, Holst, Bolt House Farms, which makes like carrot smoothies that are sold at Whole Foods around the country. And so, you know, it's it's, it's a pretty smart match of, of finding a consumer audience that's out of sync with with the sort of local politics of the of the the manufacturer. And these proved really successful. And by 2012, you have some major donors on the right who'd been giving generously to anti-gay causes in various forms, not just marriage, who sit it out. And by 2012, you have four state ballot measures. For the first time, they're all won by by the gay rights side of the marriage debate. And they always have, in all of these, they have a, a financial advantage over their opponents. And I, I quote Frank Schubert, who worked for the National Organization for Marriage as their chief strategist in this campaign, about the difficulty of, of raising money in this environment. And a lot of it was that, that people were afraid of having their names on the disclosures. And, and that actually creates this, they're so short on money that the diocese in Minneapolis, there, there's a ballot in Minnesota, there's one in Maine, the diocese and, and Catholic charities step in with major contributions. And that ends up being a persuasive problem because now a lot of the newspaper coverage becomes the Catholic church at like the apogee of its like public respect in America is like bailing out this, you know, increasingly destitute political movement. And on one hand, you know, the Catholic Church is the only big institution that's still giving a lot of money to one side of it. And Jeff Bezos comes out and, and gives $2.5 million, one of the largest single contributions in American political history at that point. And it just, over the course of a couple of years, this has gone from being something that basically straight liberal donors aren't that interested in to Jeff Bezos and Brad Pitt and everybody are giving large sums of money and a kind of normal center-right business types feel that the that the that the public pressure that they might face if they are associated with the other side of that that debate is not worth the cost and and that happens within a couple of years and totally changes the 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 economic terrain especially around an issue that's fought out largely through ballot measures which are sort of cash intensive because you don't have candidates or parties to fall back on so I want I can I just briefly yeah. I want to talk about Tim Gill in a minute but first I want to sort of you know, draw this theme out a little bit because the, the the set of tactics you're describing are almost second nature to journalists and to activists now. You know, 
my former Aaron's current colleagues at the Free Beacon. I know I spent a lot of their time reading FEC reports, reading 990s, reading state disclosures. I've done lots of reporting based on that. And partially this is, you know, a coincidence of timing that the internet made all this stuff. You didn't have to go to an office and they'll know where to get this stuff anymore. You have to call somebody. You could just go online. But part of it is, I, I guess my question is, to what extent is this an innovation, this sort of tactical use of public information, one that is, if only contingently, primarily the the work of the of the of the person sex marriage movement? I mean, I, I, other people would have come to that. I mean, people have done boycotts before, and I think I, I think that there's a little bit of a, a a probably popular knowledge gap and and political journalism gap around ballot measures. They get they're they're a huge source of policymaking in a lot of parts of the country. And yet, because they exist outside of the kind of candidate party framework, they get undercovered in newspapers. There's not a a kind of permanent accountability structure, whether in the media or opposition research on the other side. They're these kind of effinescent organizations that raise a bunch of money. But after they end, there's not like an opposing party that wants to, you know, shame the donors. And so I I Somebody would have developed these tactics if it hadn't been this movement. This, but I do think that they, there, some of this is that people just weren't looking at, at ballot measures the way that they looked at other political causes. And I think that that there probably was a little bit of popular shock that that you that you could marshal activists to care. And that's the other part of it is that so many ballot measures are on technical issues that don't really have you know, a popular constituency behind them. And and once, you know, the, the only reason this worked is that, that, you know, consumers stopped spending or they would, you know, call or heckle. This was sort of pre-social media, but that they would make life difficult for, you know, there's a car dealer in, in based in Utah that's all over the West, Mormon family that gave, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars to, to Prop 8. And activists are having events outside of their dealerships and mm-hmm. stuff. And it's, you know, they're, you need you need to have at least an issue that that is appealing enough for that type of sustained volunteerism for the digital organizing part of it to work, right? Yeah, and and so, I mean, you you you've you mentioned in in your New York Times piece that the that after this boycotts just were more normal, not just on the left but also on the right. There were calls to boycott Nike, for example, over I think some of the BLM stuff. But I do think that. If you look at which boycotts seem to have worked over the past decade or two, it does seem to me like more of them have been kind of left-wing boycotts of right-wing policies or right-wing coded institutions, right? I mean, I'm curious if you, if you would accept that characterization characterization of the symmetry, and then and then do you have any? If so, why do you think that is? Yeah, I mean, I, I I haven't studied boycotts in a in a systemic way, systematic way outside of the the, the marriage context, but that sort of rings true with with mm-hmm. what I've seen over the last decade. I mean, you know, if if I think about the sort of previous era, pre digital boycotts, which you know were much harder to organize, just because, I mean, telling people all over the country that buying grapes is bad for farm workers is like in the 1970s is just as a information distribution problem. Like that's really difficult, right? You, you know, you either need to raise a lot of money that that 
to do paid communications. You need to figure out who your audience is around the country, or you need to find a way to get media coverage. And if you have somebody like Cesar Chavez, who's charismatic and can get celebrities to come, then you could start to build interest. But that's like really difficult. But but you do think about, you know, the grapes is a, a big one, then boycotting Nestle in the 80s over, over their international baby formula practices. Those are left you know, I think originate on the U.S. or global left in the case of the Nestle stuff and, and are definitely left coded. You know, certainly that was an era where standing up to big business was sort of part of the DNA of lefty activism. I think one of the challenges that, that you know, Ron DeSantis and, and the like were trying to, you know, stimulate righty activism against big business is do you have the, the innate cultural antipathy towards like, I think you probably have to work a lot harder to convince people that that on the right that, you know, not that Disney did something that's particularly violative of their attitudes, but that like big business is an essentially nefarious institution and that you need to have this David and Goliath dynamic to to assert yourself against it. But that was like that's pretty baked into, I think, like lefty activist DNA at this point. And so when. You know, and, and it's aligned with labor unions, right? And so, you you know, I, I write about both in that piece in the Times and then in the book at some length, the sort of seminal protest outside of a Hyatt, the Grand Hyatt, I believe, in, in downtown San Diego. This guy, Doug Manchester, who's a major developer in, in San Diego, big re- sort of traditional Republican donor going back decades, tight with the sort of Catholic church in, 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 in San Diego, gives a six-figure contribution, I believe, to to the Prop 8 campaign. And he's a sort of ripe target for one of these early protests and boycotts for a few reasons. One, he's like a big known name, so you don't have to do a lot of work getting like the Union Tribune to cover your thing, like if, as it would be if you were going out to a you know shoe store or something. He has a consumer-facing product or service, this hotel that has his name on it. But also... When you call a, a protest against him, you don't only get the, you know, the gay rights activists from the Hillcrest neighborhood in San Diego and like whatever people, lefty types would show up at an anti-war protest. But also the the SEIU local is, is willing to be there, too, because they want to put pressure on him. And so I think a lot of, of anti-corporate protests over the years on the left have benefited from the fact that like you have a natural adversarial structure towards big business in organized labor. And if you can build upon that nation with issue act advocacy, you kind of have an infrastructure of people who know how to do like picket lines and you have a kind of like constituency for it. And I think that that part of this might be on the right that like there's just not a, a kind of culture or infrastructure for sticking it to big business that that that, you know, a Ron DeSantis can turn on when he wants to to mm-hmm. So I want to, we want to talk about impact, but I really, I, I, I want to dwell on just one piece that we've touched on a couple of times. One of the most interesting sections of the book, you talk about Tim Gill, who's the, what the name of his software company is. Quark. Quark, right. So, you know, so, software magnate who, I mean, is, is, is also gay, sort of gets involved in this as an issue, but I think in some senses apply, like he kind of money balls the issue. He he starts to think really critically, not just about giving generally, but about how to have impact in his giving, how to organize other people to have impact in his giving. There's a great section of the book, but I think you draw some of this from Atlantic reporting, where basically Gill is organizing other wealthy gay people to give in targeted amounts to sort of marginal state ledge races to bump people out 
And an Atlantic reporter calls this, you know, this Republican who just lost his seat up. And he goes, are you aware that you lost because a secretive gay billionaire targeted you? And the guy goes, no, that can't be right. What are you talking about? It's a great, it's a great part of the book. Oh, and yes. they go, they're, they're on the phone and they're go, they're both looking at their computers, reading through the, the Iowa State disclosure reports. And it's like contributions from Provincetown, Miami Beach, San Francisco, like none of the money that his Democratic opponent got was from in the district. And, and, and the guy's like, what the heck? But so, 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 I mean, A, A, I want to ask you to talk about that just a little bit. Then B, more generally, you know, I do think Daryl Paul wrote an interesting book about this, the way in which elite opinion led the broader opinion shift using sort of Tim Gill metonymically. To what extent do you think that was important, that sort of particularly wealthy support was important to, to shaping that sea change that you alluded to earlier, where, you know, orgs like NOM started to lose support at the same time that orgs like Freedom to Marry started to gain substantial support? Yeah. So, you know, one of the things I think sort of people misperceive and the political press doesn't do a great job of explaining is like, yes, money matters in politics, but the way that our campaign finance laws work, money is worth is worth more in certain contexts than in others. You know, the obvious example you see in a presidential race is like, you know, candidate campaigns can can get more for their dollar buying TV than super PACs can, right? But the other part of it is, is that Using money efficiently takes a lot of labor and sort of network stuff. And so I think there's some idea that like rich people, the, the rich people who have an impact on politics, have the best, most effective impact on politics, are not just ones who can write checks, but they're ones who can get other people to write checks in a in a coordinated way because of the way that our spending limits work. And Gill decides, and this is true, this is why, like, if you look at who the top bundlers are for parties all over the country. They tend to be people like lawyers who have like big networks and a lot of freedom with their schedule so that they can, you know, spend their Tuesday afternoon with their secretary calling people to go to a fundraiser, right? If you spend like 12 hours a day running your factory, you don't have a lot of like free time to sort of hobbyist in politics. And those are the people who are able to bundle a bunch of money and then and then they're the ones who become ambassadors. Like you don't find a lot of like industrialists who be become ambassadors. You see a lot of people who were like at a law firm in 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 you know Milwaukee. And what Gill did, and those are people who are doing that of their own initiative as sort of hobbyists. What Gill realized was that he could sort of institutionalize that, and he builds a political operation staffed with a couple of Republicans, in fact, who. And the money ball aspect is kind of figuring out, okay, we want to have an impact in, in certain states at certain times. But in Iowa, Iowa has really low and really hard caps on campaign finance. So Tim Gill could have written a check for $10 million, you know, or whatever the number they needed to influence the, the 20 races that they wanted to influence around, around Iowa, but nobody could write a $10 million check in Iowa. And so what do you have to do? You have to get a lot of people to write $100, $200 checks to lots of different state legislative candidates. And that's just a coordination problem. And so part of what he does is he creates his annual conferences. He brings together rich gay people from around the country. He creates a sense of camaraderie about we're donors and then enlists them to do this thing, which is like, hey, somebody from my team is going to give you a list of like 27 legislative candidates in a state you've never visited. And you need to write a check for $100 to each of these people and fulfill the disclosure requirements. And that's like fundamentally more labor and effort and like than it is a demand for cash. And, and he very intelligently figures out both how to kind of create the system that'll make this work at, at some scale and scope, but also 
keep the donors invested enough in this and explaining to them there's a reason why you are giving money to a state legislator in Grinnell, Iowa, because we have a plan. You know, our goal is there's a case in Iowa. It's going to eventually the legislature is going to have the opportunity to pass a constitutional amendment. And if we have Democrats in control and that's why we're focusing on these races there. And that that is just a type of savvy, patient institution building within the political system that is really hard to do. And and it's a lot easier to just, you know, try to find a few rich people who write really big checks. But those, you know, they're great for for funding a presidential super PAC. They're not great for for reshaping a, a legislature, for example. Now, one of the things that these donors had in common is, they, you know, they were disproportionately male. I mean, he's pulling sort of top gay and lesbian donors, but but mostly men from around the country. And they care more, you know, at this point, he starts this in after 2004, 2005, 6, 7 is when this this sort of system comes together. And at that point, there's a long menu of of items on the sort of, you know, gay and lesbian political menu that, that they could be making a priority out of. And, you know, there's obviously a lot of community stuff like paying for community centers, health clinics, all of that sort of, you know, do-goodery stuff. But even on the political side, you know, are we trying to overturn the military ban? Are we trying to expand hate crimes laws? Are we trying to pass what now is called the Equality Act, the basic non-discrimination laws into federal? Should you be focusing on your state version of this or the federal version? But the donors care disproportionately about marriage. And I think that there's like just a simple demographic fact here. These are, I mean, basically rich people spend a lot of time thinking about estate planning is is the, the shorthand that 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 I'd, I'd give, and so there, there, there were ways for gay men in particular with means to insulate themselves from a lot of the other legal and social challenges that that LGBT people face. Right, you move to a city or state that has more favorable laws. You're probably in some form or another your own boss. You're not worried about employment discrimination. You can, you know, with with contracts and estates and enough time and effort, you can create some sort of like legal facsimile of marriage in terms of a family arrangements. You are probably, if you want private security, you probably aren't terribly worried about getting gay bashed on your way home from dinner, like all of this stuff. But the estate tax comes for everybody. And the fact that you do not have a spouse to whom you can leave up to the cap really grates on, on wealthy people. And so there's a self-interest that within that, that drives a lot of them to care about marriage. And what happens in this period is there are sort of two battles of persuasion. I guess Aaron we sort of talked about the yeah, Andrew Sullivan's kind of like persuasion paradigm here. There's the we we won over the country part of it, you know, and then courts followed type thing. But before that is they won over the gay rights movement internally to make this an internal priority such that there was enough sort of internal political capital for groups to get behind these lawsuits to make it a priority in their states. And a lot of that was because the donors cared more about this and the groups that actually did the work, both nationally and in the states, had to follow the donors. So once Tim Gill started, you know, the Gill Foundation, the biggest source of money in, in LGBT politics ever, and said, one of my priorities is marriage. 
all of a sudden, these folks in the States who had been kind of ambivalent about this said, well, we need to have a marriage initiative or else we're not going to get any money from Gill. And that totally redirects the priorities of the movement. And I think without it, you gay marriage would have been fighting with a bunch of these other yeah. for sibling causes for primacy. And it ends up getting primacy in a way that creates more political backing for it. Right. Well, so your your account, it's very focused on sort of top-down moneyed interests and the way that those shaped the trajectory of the movement and then eventually broader public opinion. I'm curious what you see as the continuities and discontinuities between the gay rights movement and the current transgender rights movement. On the one hand, it seems to me like, yes, there, there's a lot of money now in trans rights and all the activist groups pivoted to kind of, I mean, all the energy around trans, right? Like, I don't, I don't really hear the human rights campaign talking about gay, quad gay issues. I mostly hear it talking about transgender things. At the same time, it seems like there's quite a bit of pushback to it and that me, I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but it, it, so far it does not seem like the trajectory is, oh yeah, you know, everyone's going to come around to this and gender affirming care and human rights campaign, that's all going to be conventional wisdom in five years. I mean, there's signs from Europe and I think even from within America that that is not quite what's happening and there's much more resistance. What do you make of all that in light of the gay rights fight? So I think I think we're probably at an earlier point in the trajectory. And I think if you look at it over a longer arc, the the similarities become clearer. I mean, this looked like a total political gay marriage thing, like a total political loser throughout the 90s and and the 2000s. It was not until, you know, I spent a bunch of time talking about how how, how Barack Obama switched his position on this leading up to 2012. And basically he did it because he made a, a, a calculation that it was untenable to be the head of the Democratic Party in 2012, who was out of sync to the right of the party on on marriage. That's only three years before the Supreme Court is ruling, and that's 20 years after this has emerged as an issue. And I think if you look in the 90s, there are a lot of people who would have imagined a trajectory sort of like what I think you're 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 flicking at on 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 the gender identity stuff, which is, you know, that that the political costs of getting behind this are too high, that you know, that this did not seem inevitable until like very late in the game. And and there's there's a point even Massachusetts becomes the first state to, mar- to to legalize marriage in 2004. And there's a period, it takes another four years for the second state, Connecticut, to to, to legalize marriage. And there's a period there, there's a, a, a constant effort in, in Massachusetts. They have a series of constitutional conventions where Republicans and some conservative Democrats are trying to basically take this away after the courts have granted by passing a constitutional amendment. And during that period, there are a lot of gay marriage strategists, activists who, you know, fear that they can lose in 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 Massachusetts and that, you know, we if that were to have happened, just counterfactual, we right now talking in 2023 might be living their fear that we might be living in a world where there was this brief experiment. You know, maybe we talk about the way we talked about reconstruction. There was this brief experiment in Massachusetts for a couple of years, and then the political backlash sort of overcame it, and nobody wanted to go back near it for another, you know, however long. But there was a real fear that if 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 they lost in Massachusetts, that like these 
these gains would not just be washed away in Massachusetts, but legislatures and judges anywhere else would would not want to touch this. And so this was very contingent for a while. And one of the things on, you know, that sits beneath the kind of persuasion curve that 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 you mentioned is a real change in in understandings, like layperson understandings of the the scientific underpinnings of of homosexuality. So, you know, in researching this, I spent I, I read uh, you know a whole lot of like Newsweekly articles from from the '90s when this issue was emerging, and almost every time Time or Newsweek wrote about this. There was a paragraph fairly high up, which is like, to be sure, scientists are divided on whether homosexuality is nature or nurture. And, you know, we don't talk about sexual orientation that way. You know, lab discoveries about about heredity and genetics have sort of filtered out to 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 the public, you know, not just in ways that we talk about sexual identity or orientation, but in the way we talk about addiction or temper or a whole bunch of things. Right. And and I think that fundamentally the political debate rests on top of a basic changed shared scientific understanding of like, okay, people are born gay. So now the question is like, what does a just society or a healthy community or, you know, do with that reality? Whereas serious people 25 years ago were saying stuff like, if we legalize gay marriage, we're incentivizing homosexuality. We're going to encourage kids to become gay. And nobody talks about any of this that way. And I suspect that we are at the early part of a curve of understanding the biological underpinnings of gender identity in such a way that wherever that leads, and I, I don't know, but that there will be a kind of shift of public opinion. You know, I mean, people, the, the, there's the best predictor always, and, you know, I cited some social science research and, and, and political operatives researching and trying to, you know, the best predictor of, of, of liberal attitudes on, on, on not just marriage, but on, on a whole bunch of gay issues in, in general is, is how people answer the question, do you know somebody who's gay or lesbian, right? And social scientists call this contact theory, basically the idea that exposure to other people shifts your political views towards greater sympathy or empathy for them. And the first place I could find this question asked was in 1980, I think 82, but sometime in the early 80s. Question was, do you have a friend, family member, friend, coworker, family member who's openly gay or lesbian or something like that? And it was 21%, which to be honest, was a lot higher than I would have guessed it if you had made me put down a wager beforehand. And now that number is like close to 100. And a whole shift in public opinion has been predicated on the fact that people are now exposed to to gays or gays and lesbians in their life and then you have to reckon with a whole bunch of moral ethical political legal questions on right. top of that fact and 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 you know where you started Aaron was the sort of the comparisons to to the movement for racial equality and one of the important differences here is that our best understanding is that more or less gays and lesbians and transgender people are evenly distributed across the population maybe at some point we'll learn more that tells us that's not true, but every indication we have is 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 that. And, and, and in that respect, biology ends up serving this like fundamentally liberalizing and desegregating power, right? It, it 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 in that the odds of a gay kid or a trans kid showing up are seem pretty evenly distributed into every household and every neighborhood, every community in the country. And that means that the people who have to reckon with what society looks like with such people in it are everyone. Whereas when we, you know, race, 
discrimination on the lines of race, religion, ethnicity have to de- had to deal with the fact that segregate patterns of segregation right. were self-perpetuating. Black kids were not being born to white families. Like Jewish kids were not being born to Catholic families. Sure. You know, immigrant kids were not being born to native-born families. And so the distance between what the majority population had to, you know, the delay with which the or the abstraction maybe with which the majority population had to had to reckon with these ethical legal moral questions is a lot different and you know we see time and time again with with public figures who we'd expect to be on one side of these debates and they end up on the other side of it and almost always it's because well my kid is trans or my kid is gay or i have a niece or a nephew or whatever yeah. and and i you know people I assume there are going to be more trans people in the United States 10 years from now than there are now. Oh, and even if some of our thinking about what doctors do and the nature of care, I think that we'll be in a in a, in a society that's fundamentally more understanding and sympathetic because more people are dealing with some version of this in their daily lives. And the political questions around it will probably change. I assume science will change the question of what trans-affirming care is in 20 years. And I I can't begin to 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 guess what that is but the the questions around you know what acceptance for gays and lesbians is has changed a lot over years too right and and so i i feel like you know if if we had to analogize this that we're in you know 1997 or something on the on the arc of the gay marriage story and you know the polling on that was generally from I guess Charles cited the you know started twenty seven percent and now seventy percent support for 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 marriage equality over over about twenty five years that was generally upward but there were a few moments where it ticked down for a year or two and and every when it happened it was in nineteen ninety six it was in two thousand four and there was some evident backlash around DOMA that led to DOMA and the Federal Marriage Amendment that when there was higher salience about this as a partisan national issue, opinion turned against same-sex marriage. And then it reverted. Then it started to play out some more in the states. I think the sort of cycle of social acceptance that came from people coming out in their communities and people around around them dealing with this changed. And then the moment it became highly polarized in a partisan way, there was a little reversion. And I suspect that we'll go through waves of the trans of, you know, for most of the Trump years, this wasn't a huge issue. Yeah. Now in the Trump sure. era, for for you know a bunch of reasons, like it's reemerged, and I suspect we'll go through periods where where there's less sort of part, you know, capital P political partisan salience around this, and and opinions will will play out differently than they do at at, at times like this. Why don't we uh, Why don't we take that as a good opportunity to transition to closing thoughts, Aaron? What's your takeaway? Yeah, I mean, I I I I think I broadly agree with what you just said in terms of the salience waxing and waning. I guess just in, in closing, though, and, and I do want to wrap up, so this isn't really a question unless you want to respond to it, but you may want to, so I'll just make the point, and then you can if you want. It seems to me that part of what was also in the background of gay marriage is that there was, there was a kind of logic to the issue that made it very easy to win over people. I mean, you know, whatever conservatives tried to say, you're coming for our marriage, it was kind of like, well, I mean, look, ultimately, this is two consenting adults who just love each other. And I like, like, and I think, you know, the it's interesting to contrast gay marriage with abortion, where, you know, 
the public opinion has remained a lot more divided and there's been more of a stalemate. And some of that you can chalk up to tactics, but I think some of it has to do with the fact that just abortion is inherently a more difficult issue. And I think anyone who's honest will admit, like when it comes to drawing lines about when you recognize human rights in an embryo, like like this just is not as easy to do. And people's moral intuitions are just naturally more divided. And it seems like, you know, although people's moral intuitions changed on gay marriage, in some ways, like they, there was a kind of deeper, probably consensus about sex and marriage and marriage is this kind of, well, it's just about two people who love each other that really had sort of begun to take hold even before gay marriage came onto the scene. And I think that made it easier rhetorically to press for it in certain ways. I guess what I would just say on the trans stuff is I think there are there are there are dynamics specific to that issue that just inherently are going to make it more certain parts of it more polarizing. I think I agree that there's always been people who have really severe gender dysphoria. People are always gonna know those people, and as that becomes more common, I think there is just a certain baseline sympathy people will have. And I frankly think, look, the bathroom bills Republicans did, those didn't really work. They got they weren't popular. It was a big bat like it. You know, that we kind of left that behind because I think people felt this sort of sympathy of, oh, well, you know, the kid's just a little different, leave him alone. The demand for medical treatment and especially medical treatment without gatekeeping, I think, is from activists is really not analogizable to the gay rights movement. And I do think that that may, may throw a curve into the trajectory that you're describing, but I don't know. I mean, I think you frankly present a very powerful case in historical context that we should be careful about making predictions about how this is going to go because people seem to be very bad at making predictions. Yeah. Charles. Yeah, sure. I mean, you know, I think, I think back in sort of future implications, part of, you know, I, 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 I am interested in sort of the, in, in, in the impact of same-sex marriage. And in some sense, you know, part of, part of what I always say when I talk to other people is, some of the smallest impacts are on the actual composition of the married population. I, I I did some statistical poking around like a month ago in which I sort of concluded uh, the effect of same-sex marriage is like an additional 0.2 marriages per year per 100,000 people. It's sort of hard to decompose there. But I think what you observe is that on the one hand, about 15% of the LGBT-identified population is married, which is like a third of the rest of the population. And on the other hand, claims of opponents to same-sex marriage that like this would be the end of marriage and would dramatically devalue lead to a spike in divorce, those fears also didn't play out. Um, and in some senses, therefore, I think you can read, and part of part of why I wanted to invite Sasha on is you can sort of understand same-sex marriage much more as a story about American politics and how American politics works and how it works in the 21st century than it is about sort of the concrete, you know, there, 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 is a, there is a concrete political outcome, but I think it's, and we're talking about sort of the course of the conversation, the strategies used on both sides, the way that both sides think about how the issue operates, the way that both sides interact with public opinion is sort of definitional of many things coming after it, inclusive of the trans debate, but not necessarily exclusively that. It's my sort of big prognosticating takeaway. Why don't we why don't we do some quick recommendations? So a little bit over time. Aaron, do you have a recommendation for our listeners this week? Yeah, I'm still working my way through it, but the Minority Rights Revolution by John Scranton, or yeah, that's what it's called, the Minority Rights Revolution. It 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 talks a lot about how different groups throughout history have used the 
Black civil rights movement as kind of a template and both the, the advantages of the limits of that approach. And he does talk a bit about the setbacks that gay rights activists had encountered up until 2003 when the book came out. So when he's writing, it very much seems like, you know, gay marriage is not really a live issue. So it's an, so the book is very, is very good history, but it's also kind of an historical artifact of its time too. So for both of those reasons, I recommend it. Well, I'm going to go ahead and take the recommendation from our guest and recommend his book, The Engagement, which I am just finishing, which prompted me to invite him on. You know, I found it to be a very thorough documentation of what I keep asserting is an incredibly important historical moment, fair and even-handed. So I recommend that to our readers, to our listeners. Um, Sasa, do you have a recommendation from your own work, other people's work, that you think our listeners might enjoy? The book I'm reading right now isn't that great, so I won't recommend that, but I've been listening to the hell out of the new bootleg series released from Bob Dylan, which I think is number 17 or 18 of stuff from around the time out of mind period. And I've fallen in love with a song that first came out on an earlier bootleg series, and I always sort of skip by, but Girl from the Red River Shore, there are two versions of it on the new release, and it is gorgeous. I'll, I'll, I'll tell my wife, the household Bob Dylan fan. Thank you, Sasha, for joining us on Institutionalized. Thank you, as always, to our producers at Nebulous. Listeners, if you have questions, comments, concerns, compliments, marriage proposals you'd like to send our way, you can always find us on Twitter. I'm at Charles F. Lehman. Aaron is at Aaron Severium. I think that's about all the time that we have for this episode. So until next time, I'm Charles Fain Lehman. I'm Aaron Severium. You've been listening to Institutionalized. We hope you'll join us again soon. 